die. For what? This is the Mad Men pregame show from WNYC. I'm Ellen Horn. Each week, we relive the most memorable moments of the series and go deep on our favorite characters. One of these characters isn't an actual person, though. It's the pitch. When Dawn or Peggy gets up in front of a room of suits, the wide-eyed, skeptical, deep pockets on whom everything depends. Today, we're talking business, the ad business. But first, here's where we are in the series. One character we've been waiting for finally showed up. I'm shipping out next week. The Vietnam War, in the form of Glenn. He's 18, hairy-chested, and enlisting. I don't expect you to understand. You hate the war! Not anymore. What about Kent State? Don't listen to Jane Fonda here. As we predicted last week, Sally is pissed. You know what? Have fun at Playland. Just remember those kids are the same age as ones you're going to be murdering in Vietnam. Sally, come on. While America's teens are off to war, seems Joan may be riding off into the sunset. I just finally got the job I've always wanted. She's got her partnership and a new beau. And while the new guy is totally into her, he hadn't factored a kid into the deal. This is not how I saw things. I have a plan, which is no plans. Another person struggling with how he sees the future is Don. Four score and seven years ago. He spends the whole episode trying to imagine what comes next for the company, which entails a lot of moping around, wondering what it all means. We know where we've been, we know where we are. Let's assume that it's good, but it's got to get better. It's supposed to get better. Dawn's angst is hard to watch. It's infinite. It's relentless. His questions are our questions. What else is there? That's what I'm asking. And no amount of sex or alcohol or product purchasing can truly fill... Okay, I can't handle this. I'd rather just... Let's hear a pitch about Peter Pan cookies. Dear Nilla Wafers, it's so plain it's over. Susie, dear Chips Ahoy, I hope... I get it which goes horribly, perfectly awry. Well, nice to see you again. Can't believe you two have the balls to walk back into this place after the way you embarrassed yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start there. Advertising gone wrong. And not just the pitch, but the front line. Not just bad ads, but complete train wrecks. During a recent Mad Men episode, I noticed something on Twitter that seemed... Well, troubling. So I called up my brother Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Ellen. So check this. I'm watching the premiere of Mad Men, and what should Jaguar USA happen to tweet but a photo of the actress that plays Joan standing in front of a Jaguar. And I think, is this irony? Like, what exactly is being said here? It it does seem to be there are two options here. Either... This is just a badly done ad without much thought, which does happen, right? Um, Or, and see, I guess this is the most generous read I could give, would be that the audience is somehow going to see this and think, yeah, I get what they're doing, and somehow form some kind of solidarity. It certainly didn't make me want to go and buy a Jaguar, but maybe I'm not their target audience. If Jaguar were saying, like, we're bringing back the style of the 60s, we've got this new retro car, 
I'd be all in. I'd be like, hey, that's awesome. That's great. That's a great way to, you know, play off of Mad Men. But the fact that they're like, yeah, and we've had to, you know, remind you that women can never really get ahead because they're always going to be undermined by their sexuality <laughs> in the workplace. Like, <laughs> like that's right. not a sales uh, pitch. Thanks, Jaguar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch, indeed. My brother Brian has a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago where he studied media and culture. And for the last few years, he's had this blog called Badvertising. It is a gallery of shame. Its virtual walls are covered with what he calls badvertisements. So a badvertisement is not just a bad ad. It's not just something with a weak sales pitch. Um, a advertisement goes sort of above and beyond and is an advertisement that is so perverse that as an audience member, that as a, as a, as a consumer watching it, you don't just feel unmotivated to buy the product. You right. feel as though the ad can only be a criticism of the ad industry. Like, it, it is a profound, like, critique of, of the conditions under which the ad was made and the economy in general and maybe society. Like, is your immediate reaction something like, ew? Like, and not just oh, that's a gross ad, or I don't feel so good about that. But more like, to make that ad, you have to completely misunderstand humanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to ask you, as, as an academic, Brian, you've, mm. you've written a lot about nostalgia yeah. and how it's been used as a political tool. So let's talk about nostalgia and w what role does nostalgia play in Mad Men? Right around when Mad Men came out, we started hearing like, oh, here we are in a second golden age of, of television. There was something about the juxtaposition of the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Time period and today. Like, what is that? Well, okay, so this is, you know, this is a guess. Um, but the 60s, in a lot of ways... You know, yeah, they were revolutionary, and a lot of things changed during them. But a lot of things changed during the 50s. Uh, you could argue that the 50s were pretty darn revolutionary in their own right. You had some pretty major civil rights uh, events going on. You, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, Rosa Parks being arrested. Um, you've got, uh, you know, uh, 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 revolution in Hungary. Uh, Castro coming to power, H-bombs being used for the first time uh, in tests. A lot of stuff was happening. But in the 50s, the story that we were telling ourselves on television was um, Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best. Even though those sorts of, you know, uh, model families were disappearing precisely during the 50s. Oh, wow. So, so right. So in television, it seemed like... We were saying nothing's changing, nothing's changing, just precisely because things were changing. Exactly, exactly. Maybe, maybe one of the big differences. Certainly, I don't want to. I don't want to diminish the '60s. A lot happened, and a lot of really important things happened. Sure. But during the '60s, there was a, an open public discourse about how revolutionary it was that these things were happening. Right? Like the Beatles were talking about how this was revolutionary. So, for all of the changes that were happening in the '50s. The dominant narrative was this is an era of of stability and stasis, right? Um, even even though that, that isn't necessarily true. Why do you think an ad agency in the '60s is such an alluring setting for a TV drama in this 
current historical moment. I wonder if maybe one of the reasons is because there's a feeling that in the 60s, the public and the advertisers used to be kind of on the same team, um, that we used to all be participating in the same economy and the same project and the same culture together. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And today, it's a lot more common to see situations where where advertisers and and their their advertisees, their public, the people they target – are really in a kind of a combative, like, adversarial relationship. Ooh, how do you mean? So, like, I mean, an example I could give you would be there there was this Mountain Dew campaign in 2012 um, when Mountain Dew was going to, it was trying to launch a new flavor of Mountain Dew, it was Green Apple. And they started an online contest called Dub the Dew, which got people to vote and contribute, like, nominate and vote for their favorite new name for their new flavor. Oh, I see, I see. So it was sort of like a crowdsourcing of this new, whatever they were going to brand the new Yeah, exactly, new name, exactly. Whatever this new, new green apple flavor was going to be, they were going to try and get the crowd participating in naming it. Um, very quickly, the top uh, nominated name and, and, and flavor title uh, became things like Diabetes. <laughs> or um, I think that that was that was the the number one for for like one week, and then the next week the the number one name of their soda was going to be uh, Hitler did nothing wrong. Wow! Um, and as a soda, that's not so good, right? The audience fought back, and they fought back really hard, and they were like, "You want you want us to play? Yeah, we'll play. We're going to call your product Hitler did nothing wrong. Market that." <laughs> Thank you very much, Brian, for joining me here on the Mad Men pregame show. I love you. All right. Love you. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Next up, we take two guys from two advertising agencies, stick them in a recording booth to duke it out over this question. How realistic is Mad Men's portrayal of the Ad Men's world? That's up next. Manipulation of the media, hell, that's what I pay you for. Our product is fine. I smoke them myself. (coughs) You're listening to the Mad Men pregame show from WNYC. I'm Ellen Horn. How do you make your cigarettes? We breed insect propellant tobacco seeds, plant them in the North Carolina sunshine, grow it, cut it, cure it, toast it. There you go. There you go. Remember this scene? It's the show's very first episode, and Don Draper saves the Lucky Strike account, just like that. Everybody else's tobacco is poisonous. Lucky Strikes is toasted. But does advertising really work that way? Good morning. Good morning. Hi, guys. How are you? Very good. Good. How are you? I'm good. So um, this is going to be our first cage match. And let me just go through the ground rules. There's no kicking. There's no screaming. <laughs> to find out, we invited a couple real-life ad men into our studio to play them a few agency scenes from the show. I'm Colin Mitchell. I'm head of planning for Ogilvy & Mather. I'm Matt Creamer. I'm a creative director at Kirschenbaum, Bond, and Seneca. And I write Mad Men recaps for Advertising Age. We asked Colin and Matt whether Mad Men is true to the nitty-gritty reality of advertising and how much is 
just Hollywood. Mad Men is realistic in fits and starts. A lot of the color that helped kind of flesh out an episode, bring it to life, are often very realistic. But when I think the show gets less realistic is when it leans on moments in an advertising agency to move the dramatic action or the kind of characterization forward. I don't think it's necessarily bad TV, but it, it kind of loses that 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 realism. So I think it's great. I mean, I am... Um... I think it's great in two ways. I think it's historically accurate. I mean, they've clearly read the history of the era, which is not very well understood and is, I think, deeply fascinating. But I think they also just understand the timeless dynamics of the gladiatorial ring of the of the pitch room and the meeting room. And it's clear to me that many of those storylines come from real anecdotes that people have told them because you see them happen today, you know, nearly 60 years later. I want to play this clip from the end of season six when things are starting to really fall apart for Don. This is a client meeting with Hershey and Don has just given this heartwarming pitch about how his dad would let him buy Hershey bars and it was the childhood symbol of love. And and just when it looks like the clients are in, they've sealed the deal, he goes and says this. I'm sorry. I have to say this. I don't know if I'll ever see you again. What? I was an orphan. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a whorehouse. I read about Milton Hershey and his school in Coronet Magazine or some other crap the girls left by the toilet. And I read that some orphans had a different life there. I could picture it. I dreamt of it. Of being wanted. Because the woman who was forced to raise me would look at me every day like she hoped I would disappear. Closest I got to feeling wanted was from a girl who made me go through her John's pockets while they screwed. If I collected more than a dollar, she'd buy me a Hershey bar. And I would eat it alone in my room with the great ceremony. Feeling like a normal kid. And it said sweet on the package. It was the only sweet thing in my life. Matt, I, I see I see something in does was this is this basically your own story? Is that what we're hearing? <laughs> I I only have a, a fraction of the childhood torment that Don Draper has. I think there's a lot of things going on with this scene that just don't strike me as very realistic. Um I think <laughs> do tell, do the, tell. The, the one thing that we that, that doesn't come through in the audio is is the visual that Don uses, which is nothing more than an image of the Hershey bar wrapper. I've never been in a meeting where the only visual that we would have, and I guess it's something <laughs> of a reveal, is the wrapper of the product. You're like, that's, here's the product. Here it is. <laughs> maybe maybe you've never seen a Hershey bar wrapper, though you work for Hershey's. Right. Um, Colin, can you play defense counsel for us here? Sure. And, and... It's not uncommon for people to self-combust in meetings I think it's a notoriously pressured profession it attracts high octane people who are notoriously 
volatile and you put those together and it just takes a spark for people to come apart very publicly. It's also speaking to the ambivalence of most ad people. You know, there's um, an element of fiction. We politely call it storytelling in what we do. And I think he's conflicted about that. Speaking of conflict, let's hear another clip. Peggy and Joan are meeting with a representative from Topaz Pantyhose. And they've got a problem. There's a new product on the market, a competing product called Legs. The crap. They're definitely not as high quality as Topaz. Well, they're in four test markets, and they're outspending you six to one, and they're outselling you 20 to one. It's more than the packaging. It's the placement. They're not just selling them in drugstores. They're focusing on supermarkets, and they're only $1.39 a pair. So what, we need to lower our price and buy more ad time? This is only a novelty, and the inferior quality will catch up with them. But we're recommending a change right now while it sorts itself out. Look, I know you think I'm cheap. And I know you think topaz are cheap, although apparently not cheap enough. But I just want to spend money where it'll make a difference. They got an egg? Why don't we have a topaz? Big plastic jewel. Green. Maybe it's see-through. And Mr. Potato Head here can relax, because he'll still make his quota when we launch it. I'd never recommend imitation as a strategy. You'll be second, which is very far from first. Well, whose fault is that? I told you about the development of this product, and you didn't seem worried at all. Art, Marvin, are you ready for lunch? Yes, I am, Kenneth. We had a problem, but we solved it. Well, that's great to hear. What do we do? We keep the client. Okay, you guys have both been in... And client meetings. What, what do you think of this one? The drama here is somebody, it's a sort of I told you so moment. And um, But because of the power relationship between an agency and a client, the blame will always fall on, on the agency, I think. Um, and then I think just historically what they're talking about here is imitation, right? So I think it's alarming for any client to be caught out like that. The instinct is to to copy it to try and nullify the difference. But that's always the worst thing you can do. Matt, what do you think on this one? I researched this this for the, the, the recap I wrote on the episode, and, and literally the details around legs and, and the launch are true to the letter. It's like they basically ripped these details from a New York Times ad column written in April 1970 down to the number of test markets to the fact that they were putting a lot of money into it. They were putting, like, uh, tobacco or car spending budgets behind legs. So, yeah, it's it's pretty spot on both, I think, in the dynamics and in the specifics. And just out of curiosity, where where do revenues compare to, to tobacco and, and car revenues on pantyhose? Uh, much, much <laughs> smaller. <laughs> okay, so in our third and final example, Don and Pete are pitching Heinz Ketchup. Don shows Heinz executives three canvases, and they're blank except for a picture on each, a burger, a steak, and french fries. It's clean, it's simple, and it's tantalizingly incomplete. What's missing? One thing. Pass the Heinz. You mean the Heinz ketchup? It's Heinz. It only means one thing. It feels like half an ad. The greatest thing you have working for you is not the 
photo you take or the picture you paint. It's the imagination of the consumer. They have no budget. They have no time limit. And if you can get into that space, your ad can run all day. Well, Pete, you said I'd say it. It's pretty bold work. I think I still want to see our bottle. I thought that at first, too, but if you We really will think... test it both ways. Let me chew on it, fellas. I don't know if you remember this, but on their way out of the client meeting, Don and Pete run into Peggy, who's now a rival working with Ted Shaw. The eternal truth is you frequently bump into your competitors in the lobby, and it's often a big surprise, and guess what? They're often people you were working with last month. <laughs> and it's sort of like, you know, it's like bumping into an ex-girlfriend when you're out with your wife. It's just a horrific moment. Nothing can be said. Everything is understood. So it's really painfully grotesque in that way. And then Don eavesdrops at the door, which is classic agency behavior as well. So when you go into a pitch room, what you the first thing you do, somebody will rush up and set up the slide presentation, but the other person will go through the garbage pails looking for the documentation from the previous agency. So I think that that's it's just very well observed and and very enjoyable in a sort of kind of vindictive, sadistic way. Matt, does this make you think of anything? I think if Don is the most important person in that room as he is in most rooms that he enters into, I kind of find it hard to believe that he wouldn't rip Pete Campbell's throat out for suggesting (laughs) that they test both ideas. Right. Um, Immediately undermining him. Exactly. It's pretty important that everybody however they really feel about the work is on the same page when you go in to, to present to the client. Yeah, um, but I, I think the other thing about Don Draper as a kind of quote-unquote creative genius is that for all his genius and for all that he is kind of respected in the industry, we see very few good ads come from him. And I've never, yeah. quite, yeah. known, I've never quite known how to read that. Is it, <laughs> is it the fact that, A, it's really hard to write I, good I, ads? I would like to believe that. That's what I, I've noticed the same thing. All the ads are awful. And I think it's quite easy to create, recreate a set and recreate the costumes. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure that's a lot of work, too. But to actually create a killer ad is very, very hard. And they can't just do it as a prop. A lot of his awards, you know, you see them on the wall. They tend to come from the late 50s. You know, the creative revolution of the 60s has, I think, in a lot of ways kind of passed the agency by. I think one of the things for the last few episodes to kind of look for is whether Draper is actually a good creative or not. Because I think the show is kind of ambiguous about it. Matt Kramer is the creative director at KBS. He writes the weekly Mad Men recaps for Ad Age magazine. Colin Mitchell is the head of planning for Ogilvy and Mather. And that's it today for the Mad Men pregame show. Our creatives are James Ramsey, Dan O'Donnell, Amy Eason, Jenny Lawton, Paula Schumann, Caitlin Thompson, and Irene Trudeau. Special thanks this week to Jaguar USA. I'm Ellen Horn, and as always, I'll be watching on Sunday night, crying into my Hershey bar. Won't you join me? Do I really have to explain that? Not if you don't want to.